So today we are continuing our look at King Jesus and uh, what that means for us and how that affects our lives today. So today we're going to go and we're going to dive into the deep end. But don't worry, I brought water wings and uh, we should be okay. So we're going to start off, here's our main idea for the day. Uh, God delights in Jesus, which means we can share in that delight because Jesus identifies with us through his baptism and his coronation as king. Now it's a lot and it's going to stay on the screen for a few minutes, but this idea that God delights in Jesus is the foundation for this entire section that we're going to look at today. It's actually the last line of this section that Karen just read. But in order to understand what that means for us, we need to see what's going on here in this passage. And in this passage, we're going to see that Jesus identifies with us through his baptism and then is crowned king and anointed king by the Holy Spirit and confirmed by the voice of God. So we're going to get this glimpse at the inner workings of God's nature today. We're going to see how God is organized, what God looks like. And we're going to see how he thinks about Jesus. Only two times in the entire Gospel of Matthew does God speak from the heavens, and both times it's about Jesus. So God is pleased with Jesus. Jesus comes. We know he comes in our place. We know that there's something about that, and we know that there's something important there. And today we're going to see what that is. So these first three chapters of John have been all about, here's how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, and today he walks out on the stage. Today, he shows that he is the king. So the preparation's done. We, we've, we've gotten all the kind of foundational stuff out of the way, and now it's full speed ahead with Jesus the entire way. And the Holy Spirit and the Father kick off his ministry right here with John. So the first uh, thing we see here is that Jesus identifies with us through his baptism. Jesus identifies with us through his baptism. And this is important because if he doesn't identify with us, there's no relationship there. There's no bridge to God the Father. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. So then Jesus came just simply means while John was baptizing, while John was out in the wilderness, Jesus identifies with us through his baptism. Verses 14 and 15 here are unique. They're not in any of the other Gospels. Mark and Luke and John don't include verses 14 and 15, this little interchange with John and Jesus. So Matthew includes this, not because he's like, well, they forgot it. He's including it because it fits with what he wants us to know about Jesus. And what he wants us to see here is he wants us to see why it is that Jesus is baptized. Why did Jesus submit to baptism? And what does that mean for you and I? And really what it's telling us is it's telling us that, yeah, Jesus' death is really important, but also his life is really important. We're not just saved by Jesus' death. Praise the Lord, we get to celebrate that and his resurrection here in a few weeks. But we're also saved by his life and the obedient life that he lived. And so that's what Matthew's going to be getting at here, and I'm going I'm to show you that here in a second. So look with me at verse 14. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So 
Last week we saw that John was a humble man. He even taught that he was not worthy of cleaning the sandals of Jesus, which would have been a task for the most menial servant. It would have been the lowest on the totem pole. But instead, John John says, "I, I shouldn't even touch you. I shouldn't be around you and definitely should not baptize you. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that John was having difficulty baptizing the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they weren't worthy, and now the Son of God comes along and John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy of baptizing you. He says, I need to baptize, be baptized by you. John sees Jesus and says, I, I, I'm the one that's the problem. You're not the problem. When you see Jesus as he truly is, you repent. When you see Jesus for who he is and what he's done, you repent. You can't meet Jesus and walk away the same. See, John the baptizer recognizes that the roles are reversed here for some reason. The inferior is baptizing the superior. It would be like Jacob going to uh, Israel and saying, I'm going to give you the firstborn blessing. It's backwards. And John the Baptist recognizes that. He says, I don't understand I need to submit to you. What are you doing submitting to this baptism of mine? Now, we don't know how John knew this. We know that John and Jesus are distant relatives. They may have spent time together. Or it could just be simply that the Lord revealed this to John. Whatever it was, John clearly saw that Jesus did not need to repent. Verse 15, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. These are the first recorded words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, it doesn't mean Jesus didn't speak for the 30 plus plus years before this. It just means these words were so important that Matthew wanted us to see, this is important, catch this. Do you think Jesus didn't have any important conversations prior to this? No, I'm sure he did. But right here, this phrase was so important that Matthew wants this to be the first words we hear uttered by Jesus. See what Jesus is coming in and he's saying, he's saying, this is God's will. I am going to obey. So there's some sort of interplay here between God the Father and God the Son where God the Father says, son, you need to go get baptized. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to submit to God the Father. I am going to obey. And this is the first of many steps that Jesus is going to take. Because at this moment, this is the start of his ministry. And his ministry ends in the most horrific death possible on the cross. This is the first of many steps of Jesus being obedient to the Father. So this this baptism shows us a lot about Jesus. One, it shows us, uh, it pictures, it kind of metaphorically lays out his life and his death. Right? When, when we are baptized, it's a picture of what's happened inside. It doesn't, doesn't save us. It doesn't clean us up. But what it does is it says, this is what has happened to me. And he would die in the water and then come out in a new life. And so this is a picture of Jesus' actual resurrection. When we do baptism right back here, this is not picturing your actual resurrection and death. Instead, we're picturing Jesus' death and resurrection in our place. The second thing this baptism shows us is it shows us it's important that we're baptized. Baptism does not save. Baptism is not your get into heaven card. Because remember, there was a thief on the cross who didn't get baptized. And what did Jesus say to him? Today you'll be with me in paradise. 
So why be baptized? Well, because the, God tells us to. It, we're supposed to. As long as it is physically possible, we are to be baptized if we are believers in Christ. The third thing is that it shows us that, that Jesus was identifying with the, the sinners. Every single person that John had baptized up till Jesus was a sinner in need of repentance. And so Jesus coming and going, baptize me too. He's saying, I am like you. I am becoming like you. I am coming in as your representative. See, we need a representative. We need a go-between between us and God. And Jesus here is initiating that. And then finally, we see in this, this baptism, we see that there's a public declaration by God, a loud voice from heaven, where the heavens are split open, and God goes, this is my son. I am pleased with him. So this is the, the start of Jesus' ministry. This is the beginning and he's, Jesus is endorsing what John has been doing, and he's taking it and more, filling it more. He's showing us exactly what is to happen. And what's interesting, we have to remember, Jesus chose this. Jesus chose to come and die. He didn't have to. This was not a, this was not a you have to go do this, go do it, Jesus. It was Jesus is choosing to do this. And we'll talk a little more about choice when it comes to God in a minute. So why, why is it that he is baptized here? What, what is the reason behind it? Because, again, Jesus has not sinned. He doesn't need to repent. So why is he doing this? Or more importantly, why is it important that he is baptized to identify with us? What, what is the reason for this? Like, we get the whole dying on the cross, right? He takes our sins. We need to get rid of our sins. So what about all this other stuff that he does? does? Does that actually matter? I mean, why didn't God just ploop, prop Jesus down here, 33 years old, have him go over to the cross, nail him to the cross, be done? Why did he live this life? Why did he have to live 30 years? Why didn't God just send him? Well, we see part of the reason why here in his baptism. So the first thing we see is that Jesus has to be our representative. He has to be identified with us. He has to be one of us. He did the same things that we do without sin and stands in our place. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the first thing is he's going to come in and he's going to be the one that represents us when it comes to the punishment of sin. Isaiah 53, 12, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore, no, bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So we get that. We get that he's taken our sin away, but there's more to it than that. And that's the second thing we see, is that we see that Jesus is obedient here in baptism. Jesus shows that our salvation would not be complete with just his death on the cross. See, in, in Christ's death, we're counted as sinless. Our sins are taken away from us. In his obedience and his perfect life, we are now counted as righteous. Both are given to us. The word we use is imputed. Okay? It's, it's, it's added to us. See, we've broken God's commandments. We need somebody's righteousness who's never broken a commandment. Because the righteous are the ones who get to see the Lord. Not just those who have no sin. There's more to it. So John's baptism was a command God gave to his people. And if they obeyed it, they were 
righteous. And Jesus is fulfilling that. Romans 5.19 For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience we were made righteous. So just as Christ's death on the cross is the perfect covering for our sin, his righteous life is the perfect life we couldn't live. This is called the great exchange. He gets our sin and we get his perfect life counted to us. He takes away our sins. We become spotless, like the pure spotless lamb he is. But then he lives the life we couldn't live, so his righteousness is given to us. If we think about it, if we think about it like an account, right? We think about it like a bank account. All of us are in the negative because of sin. Jesus comes along and he fixes the balance so we go to zero through his death on the cross. But having a bank account that's at zero is not going to get you into heaven. You need to be righteous. And so not only does he take our sins away, but he takes his righteousness and he says, now when God sees you, he sees you as a perfect law keeper. You are righteous. You may enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that's the picture that we see here. Because ultimately, this act of baptism is Jesus submitting and obeying in our place. And it fulfills righteousness. So that, that phrase, to fulfill all righteousness, means to complete everything that forms a relationship with God. Remember, we talked about how repentance is what starts relationship with God. We need relationship with God. That's what we long for. And that's where we are, we are broken. And we talked about how if you're turned towards your sin, your back is to God. Repenting means to turn and go a different direction. So now I, in faith, am turning towards God. My back is to sin. And this is what Jesus is doing. He is obeying. He is turning to God in our place, and it's credited to us. So why be baptized? I mean, couldn't he have just not done that and come, come a different way? Ultimately, the, the new people who were being gathered by John the Baptist were because of their repentance and their faith not because of their Jewishness, not because of their ethnicity, but because of who they put their faith in. They needed righteousness given to them. We see this in the Apostle Paul in Philippians. He says, Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes by faith in Christ. Righteousness from God that depends on faith. So what Paul is saying is, I could, live, I could try to live a perfect life and I'm going to come up short. I need righteousness credited to me. I need right living. I need some obedience to the law. And Paul says, I get that in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus did that on my behalf. And so Christ fulfills all of that in order to walk into the courtroom of God and be able to stand there not as a condemned you had to be righteous so Christ did that on our behalf and praise be to God that when God looks at us he sees Christ's righteousness he doesn't see our sin he doesn't judge that because Christ took it and he gave remember Jesus is the branch we talked about how he was the branch of David, how he's the bridge. He is the reason we can have a relationship with God. We cannot come into a relationship with God without the go-between, and that's what Jesus is. And then the last line of verse 15, it says, Then he consented. This would be John. John the Baptist obeyed as well. 
Jesus says, you need to do this. He gives a command. Jesus' first words are a command to John, and John immediately follows it. Because just like God, Jesus has authority. And when Jesus' words cause his commands to happen. What a, what, a, what a cool picture of Jesus. We'll see this again next week. Now verses 16 and 17. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So this section starts off with Jesus coronated by the Holy Spirit's anointing. Jesus is crowned as king by the Holy Spirit's anointing. This idea of the heavens opening up, this happens all the time in the Bible when God is doing something big. We saw it in Isaiah 64. We see it in Ezekiel 1 when Ezekiel's getting his vision. We see it in Acts 7 when Stephen looks into heaven and he's the first martyr. We see it in Acts 10 when Peter has the heavens opened up and the sheet raised down, brought down. This is always a significant event. When God rends the heavens, it means pay attention, something big's happening. And then it says, the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God descends like a dove. This is to remind us of 1 Samuel. This is to remind us of David's anointing, which, by the way, we have an adult Bible study led by Pastor Tim and lots of other men at the church. That's on our website. You should check it out. It's 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 great. All you can do right now is listen to it, but it, it, it'll, it, it'll, it'll rock your world. So go find that if you haven't done it already. 1 Samuel 16, verses 11 through 13. This is the, this is the time where Samuel is looking at the, the sons of Jesse, David's brothers, and he's going through all these manly men that look the part of a king, and he's waiting for God to say, this is the king. And it says, Samuel said to Jesse, are these all your sons? And Jesse said, there remains the youngest but he's keeping the sheep. Samuel said, send for him, and we will sit down here when he comes. And Jesse sent for him and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise and anoint it, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed in the midst of the brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Daniel from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So this, is, this picture that we see here is the exact same idea, is that the Holy Spirit has come down onto Jesus to say, here is your king. Remember, Israel wanted a king because they wanted to be like all the other nations. And that didn't work out so well. And now they have a king to make them like no other nation in that they have a perfect king. This like a dove, I mean, there's lots of ways to take this. It could be a combination of the Genesis 1-2 where it says the spirit hovered over creation. So it could be God saying, look, new creation's coming. It could be a symbol of Israel like we see in Hosea 7-11 where this is saying, this is the true Israel. It could be like the dove from Noah's Ark saying, this is a new world being started. Just could be that God said, I want a dove. But either way, it's showing us this is the inauguration, this is the coronation, this is the start of it all. This is my son, whom I am well pleased. It signifies something new. Now it's important, there there have been some rather heretical teachings about this dove. 
There's actually one that traces all the way back to the Gnostics, which would have been the old age, and now we're in the new age, right? There's nothing new under the sun. The Gnostics believed that Jesus was just a man and that there was a Christ consciousness that alighted on him here. And so uh, this has grown in popularity today. It is taught in Hollywood. It's taught on TV. It's taught on talk radio by many, many people who just say, well, Jesus was a good guy, but he was more enlightened. This idea of a Christ consciousness coming on to Jesus says, this is just a man and God made him more divine. And so you all can be like Jesus that way. But that's not what this is teaching. See, the Bible is clear. Jesus was God from all eternity past to all eternity present. There has never been a time when he's not been God. And this is going to play a huge role in, as we look at the last verse. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. One commentator translated, This is my priceless Son. I am deeply pleased with Him. The message says, This is my Son, chosen and marked by my love, the delight of my life. Probably the most literal translation of this is, This is my Son. I endlessly delight in Him. I delighted, I delight, I will delight in him forever. This is not Valentine's Day card platitudes. This is a statement of fact. And God the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is how I feel about this guy. This is how I feel about my son. So we're going to look now at Jesus and his experiences for all of eternity. Told you, deep end. This voice from heaven confirms that this is his son. Not only that, this is the first time God has spoken in nearly 400 years. 400 years. And what are the first words he chooses to utter after four centuries of silence? He utters the words, this is my son, my beloved, I am well pleased. See, Matthew had been laying this out for the first two chapters. He'd been saying, he's God's son, he's the king. He's been saying it all the way through. How does Matthew know this? God himself says it from heaven. Like that person who holds the perfect comment right to the last second and then gets it in there. God waited to this moment to make his his voice heard and make it be known. The only other time that God speaks in the book of Matthew is when we go to the transfiguration in Matthew 17. And this is the time where where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and takes them up on a mountain and he shows himself in his pure white, almost unbearable to look at splendor. And Elijah and Moses show up and Peter says, we should make a place for you. And then it says these words in verse 5 of Matthew 17. While he was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed him, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is my priceless son, the one I endlessly adore and delight in. Listen to him. If there's not a better testimony of who Jesus is, it is, it's this. This is the best. There's nothing better. This beloved son, the triumphant messianic king the servant god is pleased god delights god joys in him and that's incredible that is what it makes jesus something special 
So now we need to take a second and we need to try to get our minds wrapped around how all this kind of comes together. God's nature. What, what do we do with that? Well, we use a word called trinity. This word does not appear in the Bible. It's to summarize what the Bible teaches. Because if you look at it, you go, we're praying to Jesus, we're praying to the Holy Spirit, we're praying to God the Father. It looks like three gods. The problem with that is the Bible teaches there is only one God. And so as we read the Bible completely, we see what the Trinity is. And so we created a word, tri, three, unity, one, three and one. And so these are the main things we believe about the Trinity. One, there is one God. There is only one God. Two, God exists forever in three persons. Three, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And then the fourth thing we see is they are all different but a part of the same. So one way that this is explained is God is one in essence, but yet three in person. And you go, I don't understand that. That makes no sense to me. And I go, amen. Because if we can understand God, if we can put him in a nice neat box and say, this is what God's like, I understand him fully, then that's not God. That would mean I'm God because I understand God fully. And so God has revealed himself to us, this multifaceted diamond that just when we think we understand how it works, he shows us another bit and it blows our minds. This trinity should blow your mind. It should go, wow. So God, for all of history, has lived in community with himself perfectly, Meeting all of the, if he had needs, but he's meeting all of the joy requirements and love in the three people of the Trinity. So God has been loved for all eternity. Not like the God of the Muslims who say God is love, but he's been by himself for eternity. Who's he loving? Who's he loving? It's not love when you just focus it on yourself. But Jesus in three is able to be loved for all of eternity. He's able to be community for all of eternity. He's able to just cohabitate together for all of eternity. And this is Jesus. This is where Jesus has been for all of eternity. This is the delight that we are allowed to see in this passage. God is saying, the way I feel about Jesus right now is the way I felt all of eternity. How amazing is that? Literally, I delight in Jesus. So God testifies here. Now, we, we need to understand that the Father loves the Son and the Spirit perfectly. The Son loves the Spirit and the Father perfectly. The Spirit loves the Son and the Father perfectly. They don't need anything. This is perfect love. No lack because they're perfect, and then they love. They do it perfectly. He didn't need anything. So why create us? Why make us? There is, there is a lot of people that think, well, God, you know, he needed us. You know, he, he had to, to make us, you know. Or maybe they'll say something like he was bored, didn't have a hobby, you know. If you have eternity, you get through all the streaming services eventually, and you don't have nothing else to watch, so make humans. But why make man? He wasn't lacking. He had no need. 
Here's why he made us. The Bible tells us, which is really good. You don't have to take my word for it. He made us, because just like when you get a good joke, which arguably mine was not very good, just like when you get a good joke, or you hear a good story, or something amazing happens to you, the, the joy is complete when you tell somebody, when you share it. When you go, you won't believe who I met. Let me tell you. You won't believe what I saw. Let me tell you. I mean, that's why most social media existed to start with, is to, here, let me show you my plate of food. Look how amazing it is. Let me show you what I did in my yard. Let me show you this weird TikTok dance that I just did. All of that is to share the joy that you've experienced. So why did God make us? God created us for his glory. He made us to make much of him. He decided to create beings that could appreciate him and love him and see him and go, you're right, God, you are the best. Isaiah 43, I told you, take, take the Bible's word for it, not mine. He says, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made. So you, you wonder what you're here for? You wonder what life's all about? You were made for a purpose, and your purpose is to glorify God. There are seven billion images of God on this earth. Every single one is a statue, a testimony to the God of the universe. When Moses asked, Lord, I want to see your face, he didn't have to go anywhere. He could just look at all of you. Every single one of you is a facet, a slight different facet of God. You are reflections of God, and you are here to glorify God. See, it's not about us. It's about God, and it's even an understatement. God created us to know him and love him and show him off to everybody. And the scriptures lay this out over and over again. Why did God create us? Because he loves us. Why did he do things with us? Because he loves us. He wants us to see his glory. So Matthew 1, before Jesus was even a glimmer in his parents' eyes, Jesus existed. And he existed as God. And here's the amazing thing. The Son of God, as the Son of God, was delighted in by God the Father before he ever did anything. Before he ever existed, before he came down as a baby, before he went to the cross, before he resurrected, God delighted in Jesus for all eternity. Even if Jesus had never come. Now, when we look at Jesus, and we should, we should look at it and say, his cross, amazing. His resurrection, amazing. His teachings, amazing. His grace, his mercy, his love, amazing. But even with all of that, he's more amazing than all of that combined in the eyes of God for all of eternity. So many times we look at Jesus and we go, Jesus, I love you because of what you've done for me. God the Father goes, no, Jesus, I love you because you. I love you because of who you are. Just for you. And that's where we've got to get to. All of these gifts that God gives us are meant to help us appreciate God for God meant for us to, uh, to, to love and appreciate Jesus for Jesus, not because of what he does. Those are just a taste of how great he is. 
Jesus is delightful to God, even if he had never come and died on our behalf. God didn't send Jesus to die and then go, I love you. That's great, thanks Jesus. He goes, I love you, and then he went. He delights in God, and God delights in him. So God is saying, with this, my son in whom I'm well pleased. He's saying, look at Jesus. If you want to know me, look at Jesus. If you want anything, you want to hear anything from me, look to Jesus. If you want to please me, look to Jesus. If you want relationship, look to Jesus. See, he is the one we need to focus on. He is the one that bridges the gap. So here's the good news. This has all been good news, but this is even better. God has opened up the Trinity to us. He's allowed us to look at this relationship that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit have had for eternity. And not only that, he has provided a way for us to enter into that delight. See, our sin has marred. It's gotten in the way. Originally, Adam and Eve were created to be with God in perfect relationship, but they chose to sin, and we get their sin plus all of ours heaped on top. But Jesus has come and taken that away and given us his perfect life so that now we can enter in. So here's our final point. When we identify with Jesus, we are brought into God's delight. God no longer looks at us as an enemy, but he looks on us with those eyes that he's looked on Jesus for all of eternity. And he can say, I delight in you. Did God have to do this? Did God have to redeem humans? No, but he did. And when he did it, praise be to God, we can now have relationship with him. Why did God do it? To glorify himself. But still, why did he do it? Because he is good. Look at Psalm 86, verse 10. For you are great and do wondrous things. So God's greatness leads to his wonderful things. Psalm 119:68. You are good and do good things. See, God's nature is great, is good, is loving, is pure, perfect love. And that's what he acts out of. Remember the song, Good to Me? It's an older song. For you are good, for you are good, for you are good to me. Two-thirds of that is about the goodness of God. You are good. You are good. Oh yeah, and you're good to me. That's how we have to see this. God is good. And when he's good to us, he wants us to see the first two parts. That he is good. He is great. He delights in us because of Christ. The Father is overflowingly pleased with God, the Son. The Father is not only pleased with Christ so much to love Christ and dwell in him, but he's so pleased and delights in Christ so much that it overflows to us. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, this is God the Father talking. I have filled the ocean bed of my son's nature with my divine love. Now bring here all the dried up torrent beds that can find and I will fill them also. Yes, bring here the dry Saharas, the wild deserts where never a drop of dew has fallen and I will make them all to rejoice and blossom as the rose with its superfluity of love which I have to my dear son. There is enough to make me love even the world for his sake. So when we 
are taken in and we are in Christ and his sacrifice and his life are credited to us, God's love, which he's been pouring out on Jesus for all of eternity, overflows Jesus and splashes onto us. If that's not the greatest news in the world, I don't know what is. Our Lord Jesus is so loved by God the Father that when we identify in his life, death, and resurrection, that love is transferred to us and we get to experience that not just here and now, but for all of eternity. So when we are baptized into Christ, when we enter into the relationship with him, this is the word these are the words that god says about you now i would love to be there when he says it from heaven please invite me but if it doesn't say it from heaven you're going to hear it right here because this is for you when you are baptized into christ and you become a member of his family this is what god is saying you are my priceless child i endlessly delight in you because of christ what a sweet gift. He will endlessly delight in us, not because we're great, but because Jesus is. And his life, death, and resurrection provides that. Enter into that delight today. Join the family. Overflowing love coming your way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your life, death, and resurrection in our place. Lord, thank you so much that you have lived this life in our place and that died the death we couldn't, but even more so, thank you for sharing the love that the Father has for you. And Father, I praise you that you're willing to share that and that you have so much love for the Son that it would overflow onto us meager creatures. I pray that we would feel that and we would, we would rise up under that and that we would desire you more than anything else. We were made for you. Help us not to settle for lesser gods. Help us to delight in you as you overflowingly delight in us. Help us to do that today, throughout this week, through the remainder of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.